On this episode, we're joined by Blake leader, Dr. Rochelle Constantine. I say joined, but really, I mean honoured. She's an accomplished biologist, an inspirational lecturer, and a relentless champion for the marine environment. Rochelle is based out of the University of Auckland School of Biological Sciences and Institute of Marine Science, quite the mouthful I know. My first encounter with Rochelle was just too classic not to share. She was running 10 minutes late to our interview, of which she appeared at the far end of the corridor with a solid speed walk on and immediately apologised. Hi Harry, I'm so sorry, I've just been on the phone trying to deal with an emergency whale stranding up north. (laughs) This lady is ready for action at all times. There's lots of things I love about Rochelle. Her giddy excitement when you get her talking about what she loves. You'll experience this shortly. Her reasons for being late (laughs) and the role she plays in communicating, connecting and inspiring world-class science. Simply put, we need more people like Rochelle. I really didn't have much of an idea of where my conversation with Rochelle would go. I was pleasantly surprised, however, when we found ourselves chatting about subjects like humpback whale migrations. We also found out that Antarctica holds what I consider one huge summer food festival for ocean-enjoying animals every year, and some of Rochelle's precious moments with nature during her career. I hope you enjoy. I started studying whales uh, in about 1995, um, the humpback whales of Oceania, which um, were highly endangered at the time. They, they were only uh, one of only two endangered populations of humpback whales left in the world, um, having been you know, severely decimated during the whaling era throughout most of the sort of early mid 1900s. And for some reason, the Oceania humpbacks, which are sort of between about New Caledonia and um, over to the French, French Polynesia region, those whales were, were not recovering very rapidly. So, you know, we, we sort of started working on those with um, Scott Baker, who was my supervisor at the time. And, um, and then that work, you know, became part of the South Pacific Whale Research Consortium, which is this wonderful aggregation of friends, started off friends and that, but we're all scientists from all over the place. Um, and, and when we sort of got our head around the whales and their use of their um, winter tropical breeding grounds, I was like, well, you know, we've kind of, we know that there's enough habitat for them and they're carving and that, but why are they carving at such a low rate, especially compared to the East Australian humpbacks? What's carving, if I could just ask? Uh, carving is um, females giving birth. Right, yeah. carving, sorry, Car- yes. Yeah, carving. <laughs> um, so the, um, they, every year, so they have a one-year gestation. So in the winter months there in the tropical breeding grounds, the males go there. That's where you get the complex whale song from humpbacks. Right. So oftentimes you'll see a picture of whales and they'll play song no matter what whale it is. Only humpbacks sing. You know, mm-hmm. So I'm often looking at a picture of a blue whale that's singing. It's like, no, they moan and groan and moo. Most whales are very, uh, make very uncharismatic sounds. But humpbacks have this really complex vocal repertoire. Uh, mostly the males sing these. We think that they have, um, they're to do with breeding, um, either competition between males or spacing between males and attracting females. So there's probably a few different roles for the song. Um, So, you know, when we were sort of, okay, we understand the humpbacks across the breeding grounds reasonably well, well enough to say, 
they're not limited by space or other things. Uh, so my attention then turned to the feeding grounds or the migratory paths. Right. And so it, it, it's really easy, you know, to go, oh, well, we'll just nick down to, to Antarctica. Because no. on a map, it's, you know, if you put your fingers between New Zealand and Antarctica. That's right, you can almost touch it. You can almost <laughs> touch it. It's amazing. Um, and um, around that time, you know, I, I think there were a lot of us uh, in the Southern Hemisphere sort of drawing our attention more towards Antarctic waters as uh, trying to understand what was going on and that role in the lives of whales. Mm. So um, uh, the... Um, the Australians actually, uh, in collaboration with a number of other what are known as the like-minded countries, so the countries that are about whale conservation rather than whaling, mm. came together and developed the Southern Ocean Research Partnership. Right. And um, so that's now officially adopted by the International Whaling Commission, which right. is the body that governs whaling and whale management. Right, the um, management of whales as a resource. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it was originally established in the mid-1900s to manage whaling. Right. You know, so it, it is actually a, a whaling organisation rather than a conservation organisation. There's been a lot of... Yeah. Um, Slightly guess, clashing ideologies. Yeah, 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 but really important conversations to Absolutely. have. Because like the same debate goes on in fisheries. Absolutely. You know, and, and a lot of terrestrial things. You know, how do we balance... Um, exploitation of resources with uh, sustainable conservation management practice that's of right. them. You know, and whales, that's a really hard thing to balance. Mm. Um, so anyway, the Southern Ocean Research Partnership, one of the main drivers for us was to develop non-lethal research methods um, to understand everything we needed to know about the ecosystem, environment, and whales in that space. So it kind of, that um, SORP project, you know, came along at uh, just the time when we were starting to turn our attention down there a little more, you know, yeah. that, than we normally had. Right. So in 2010, um, I was part of uh, uh, the Antarctic Whale Expedition, which was a joint Australian-New Zealand expedition specifically to look for whales, right. to tag whales, to tag. and uh, to collect biopsy Cool. Samples, right. um, photo ID, you know, anything we acoustic anything recordings, that we can, yeah, yeah, and, but all of it on a mission. Yeah, yeah, and to collect to do good science, yeah. but not kill a whale. In That's the process. right. Because well, previously, did you have to basically either find a whale or, or find a whale that was dead, or did you have to get one, or like how how did you sort of go about that? Yeah. So, um, has a lot of what we know about large baleen whales is actually from the whaling era. Right. Yeah, of course. And there was whaling scientists. And, mm. and some of them are, are still alive. They're, they're getting pretty old now, but they um, they did amazing work. You know, measuring every single aspect Specimen. of the whale. Yeah. yeah, very, really intense, heavy, um, heavy duty science, and really valuable science because we can draw on that today. Um, but in recent times, you know. Like I, as I said, you know, you don't just pop down to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Even the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the closest sort of you know, where get, the yeah. land is uh, to the Antarctic area, it's still a decent hike. So for us, the whales in Antarctica have largely remained a mystery until recent years. So this SORP project and the Antarctic Whale Expedition was actually the first pure large-scale whale um, uh, voyage. We went on the Tangaroa, the, the New Zealand yep. um, research, large research vessel that's you know, housed at Niwa in Wellington. And uh, it was a fantastic trip. Um, Nick Gales, who was at the Australian Antarctic Division at the time, pulled together this really amazing team of people. So within that, 
Finally, we could go and see where the Oceania whales were. I was super excited. So I, I run the um, Humpback Whale Connectivity Project. Cool. Off we go. We go between 150 east and west, which is a decent you know, chunk of Antarctica south of New Zealand. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it takes a week to get there. Right, <laughs> to so, sail. Yeah, so you're like, and we're off. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's, it's a long way. Absolutely. But you do have a lot of time to, you know, unpack your bag and, yeah, exactly. and sort of get ready for it. Get ready. Yeah, get ready. <laughs> and the thing that um, struck me was just, you know, how far away it is. I mean, it is literally a week from Wellington down to where we sort of were in a place where we'd be seeing we whales, start, Antarctic yeah. whales. So off we went. They're all there in the summer. Um, they're feeding. Right. So Antarctica in the summer um, is a very different place to winter. Um, what happens around sort of uh, October, November-ish is the ice all starts melting. You know, right. they're getting more sunlight. That's right. The ice melts, so it recedes. The uh, phytoplankton that's been holed up under the ice for right. the winter, it just sits there pretty dormant right. to, to all intents and Sleeping. Yeah, sleeping. <laughs> so phytoplankton's like the beginning of the food chain there. Yeah. You know, it's it's like the plants, it's yeah. the grass. <laughs> and is that like, is in terms of global phytoplankton, is, is there a, like heaps in Antarctica, like, you know, a lot in comparison to necessarily other oceans? No, no. Huh? It, there's, um, what it does is it booms though. Right. Because it has this really... Dark that cycle, that winter. dormant cycle. And summer, like the peak of summer, it's pretty much 24 hours a day sunlight. Yeah. So if you've got a photosynthesizing, you know, organism, right. which phytoplankton is, right. it's sunny. It's just going to keep, keep photosynthesizing, reproducing, Absolutely. you know, more and more and more. Yeah. But, you know, in the winter, there's very little. So it goes right down. So whereas in New Zealand, where we have a reasonable day-night cycle, That's right. um, you get... Constant. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I did not think of it like that. That's no. a really good point. Yeah, you're about to find, you know, heading down there that, oh, it's still daylight. Oh, it's two in the morning. It's oh. still sort of light. Mm. <laughs> I'm gonna, mm. I better go to bed soon. <laughs> you yeah, know, but for, for things like, you know, phytoplankton where photosynthesis needs light, so they are always producing. So that means that the things that eat phytoplankton, zooplankton, they go nuts as well because they just eat, 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 and they're yep. reproducing, etc. Awesome. So whales, um, most of the baleen whales, are feeding on krill down right. there. And so you get this boom of phytoplankton, boom of krill, and subsequently it's a great place All to be a, a krill-eating organism. Um, so penguins and seals, that's right, yeah. everyone's going nuts. And the whales being you know, massive consumers of of plankton so you know being down there and actually being in that environment and watching the whales having seen them you know in their their uh, breeding grounds where they do no feeding at all right. you know and then uh, seeing them on their migration path and then seeing them in their feeding grounds I mean it's just for <laughs> me they're really really different lives that they lead the right. exact same animals you know are leading these breeding ground, migratory path, That's feeding right. ground, migratory path, breeding ground, for the give or take 70 years of their life. That's right, that and it's per year? Yeah, every year. Every year, and every so year. from what I can make of it now, it's like uh, they do their feeding when they're down south, yeah. they get nice and bulky, ready for their trip really fat. up, super fat. So they, like when we biopsied them, they have like a little oil squirt, you get this little oil slick, so fat, they'll be like, <laughs> this little oil squid, you're like, ew. <laughs> They are so fat. It's great. Okay, so they they, <laughs> they put on the pounds, right? Yeah. They're bulking season, if you yeah, like. That's right. Uh, and then they travel up north. Do they do they use quite a bit of that energy going back up to the tropical zone? 
Well, they use some of it. Right, but not yeah. all of it because they need to get back down. That's right. Right, so they lean up on the way up. They yeah. get nice and lean and muscly, and then they go into the <laughs> tropical areas where they see the ladies. Yeah, so, so the interesting thing is that all the males, all the females, these are humpbacks, of course. Right. So all the males, all the females, they're all moving around the similar times within you know a month or so of each other. So you get this this movement, like the heavily pregnant females will will um, uh, start to move, and they move at a slightly different rate than the, the males. The males usually are on the breeding grounds early. They sort of establish females who um, uh, don't you know who uh, don't have calves or aren't going to calve that year. They usually arrive not long after. So you kind of get these slightly different timings for arrival on the the um, breeding grounds uh, and again similar similarly slightly different departure times to go back to the feeding grounds so it depends if you're a uh, if you're a heavily pregnant female um, so she gets pregnant six months later she's in Antarctica still feeding you know, six months later she's back on the breeding ground and she calves you know so they have a very different energetic demand the calves are about a third of the size of their mum they're born precocial which means they're kind of born ready to go they're not like us we're useless yeah. but the babies are born they have to be able to swim and, and they're out stay there. with mum right. yeah and they're feeding from her huge amounts of food because she's you know um, they're suckling from her okay, quite right. rich fat milk yeah. so the female not only has to balance that energetic demand of keeping herself alive and, and using her fat resources stored energy resources and blah blah um, but she also has to have enough to feed her calf that her calf can grow sufficiently that it it can start the swim back down to Antarctic with Antarctica right. with her yeah so and that that swim takes on the order of uh, about nine weeks or right. so, give or take, depending. They move quite slowly. They're not a fast whale. But they have... The thing that strikes me is just this amazing... Um, this is what they're born to do, but this amazing balance of energetic demands, you know, just gorging, feeding, 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 putting on so much weight yeah. that they then have to measure carefully right. as they move north. They can't swim too Crafted. fast to burn it. Yeah, that's right. They can't race around too much. If they don't have enough energy resources, they won't get back to Antarctica. And we know most of them manage to do that. So it's a really different strategy to us. You know, we sort of wake up and hang off the fridge and go, I'm hungry. Graze. For, yeah, that's yeah. right. Whereas for them, they have a very different um, physiology and all that's that mechanism. Right. You know, so so why we were interested in Antarctica, um, not just for humpbacks, but for all whales, That's is right. for Oceania whales. It was like, okay, so if they're coming up here and they're looking okay, but they're recovering at about half the rate as the East Australian whales, what's going on? Is there something in Antarctica? Is the food not as good? Uh, are they swimming further? You know, for their for, on their migration path, right. and so my PhD student um, Lena Ricola, she's finishing up this year, has been looking at exactly that. So we whacked a bunch of tags in whales. I think we had uh, deployed twenty four tags right. in humpback whales at Roll Island at the Kermadex, which is one of the places the Sir Peter Black Trust takes tags. That's their right. Kids. That's yeah. right. And I actually went on that first voyage there in two thousand twelve with the Sir Peter Black Trust because I wanted to see if we could actually work at Roll. So. Um, um, the Kermadec Islands are the Bit northernmost. Trip. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They're the northernmost part of New Zealand, but they're the southernmost place where there are sufficient numbers of humpbacks passing by on their way south that we could tag. That hopefully the tags would last 
down to Antarctica so we could get an idea of where they were going and what they're doing. And, I mean, blow me down. We, <laughs> we just, I mean, honestly, it was so exciting. We found that um, mums with calves swam pretty much straight down, so they sort of bypassed most of mainland New Zealand, cool. a little bit past the Chathams, but straight down to yeah. the sort of Direct Ross Sea route. region, you know, yeah. outer Ross Sea region, so not in the Ross Sea, which okay. is, you know, a really important place. But they sort of stopped near the gyre, and that Ross Sea gyre is an area of sort of quite high productivity. Cool. What's the gyre, if I could just ask quickly? Um, It's an oceanographic uh, effect, and it's just the way the waters move through that space. Okay. Mm. Um, And... And, but what it means is that there's it, it brings uh, levels of higher productivity. Right. So that means right. there's more phytoplankton, zooplankton. Greater ecosystem productivity in general. Yeah, that's right. right. And so for the um, humpbacks, that near that area is a place where they just stop and they feed. And they're a few hundred kilometres away from the ice edge. Um, and so what we found is, so that's where the mums and calves went. And then the other whales, pregnant females, non-pregnant females and males, swam over towards the Amundsen and Bellingshausen Sea regions, which are kind of south of the South Pacific. Okay. So, you know, it's sort of nothing. Right in the middle of <laughs> yeah. absolutely nowhere. Yeah, that's right. And sort of almost, I think the furthest, um, the furthest Easter whale went was about... Uh, about 800 kilometres shy of the Antarctic Peninsula. Right. So quite a long way east. So those whales that swam, you know, just sort of in a linear distance, that swam um, towards the Bellingshausen and Amundsen Sea regions, they swam about 3,000, 4,000 kilometres more in a sort of straight line distance that, than, than the mums and with the calves. Right. Which is fascinating. And you're like, wow. Why are they doing that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and how, amazing. I suppose, as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why would you go all this extra distance to get food when perhaps you could have got food if you went straight down? So this is now, like, got me scratching my head. But these, when we compared that then to where some of the East Australian whales went, it was, you know, sort of that distance over towards the Ammons and Bellingshausen was considerably more even than the East Australian whales that are recovered really rapidly where they're going. But the other thing that we found, some really lovely work done by our colleagues in Australia, is that the whales going past East Australia, they stop and have a snack. Mm. They feed off Eden. Snack time. Snack time, yeah. (laughs) Because land, large land masses, like New Zealand and Australia and what have you, they they have areas of productivity. That's right, there's productivity. So you get this cold, warm water mixing, um, eddies, um, nutrient flows, flows all of from that the stuff. land and all, all that stuff. Kinds yeah, of stuff. All that yeah. goodness. So, and, um, so there's phytoplankton blooms and there's these kind of krill blooms. Mm. Yeah, and fish as well. And so what they found is that, um, that for the humpbacks of Australia, East Australia, they're feeding, not all of them, but many of them, and um, some of them are coming over and feeding off Fiordland. So recently, um, last year and the year before, we've been working closely with Doc mm. Southland, who just amazing bunch of people, Absolutely. going um, through Fiordland and going and getting biopsy samples and photos of humpback whales from there heading south. Because there in Fiordland, at about the same time as the whales are passing um, Raoul Island. So in around about that sort of September, September October-ish, okay. we have at sort of the southern part, southwest of New Zealand and up in the Kermit. They've developed a taste. Yeah, well, they're two very different 
movements of whales. Right. One's from Australia and one's from the, um, across oh. Oceania. So there's this really... New Zealand's kind of this really funky little spot yeah. in the migration path of these animals. That was kind of long, sorry. No, that was fantastic. (laughs) I'm waving my arms around for those of you listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, just briefly before you touched, or we did touch on sort of ecosystems. Yeah. um, With the Southern Ocean, it's obviously a a huge, uh, in the summer months, obviously, it's a massive boost to production. You've got all of these different organisms and food, I should Mm -hmm. say, um, growing and expanding rapidly. Uh, So the food chain in Antarctica, how does it kind of, um, obviously, you have your layers, right? And you start off with the zooplankton, phytoplankton. Phyto. Phyto. Yeah. Then we go to the zooplankton. Yeah. And then we go fish kind of thing. And then we go seabirds, etc., dolphins, mammals, whales. Uh, and so that, that whole layer, it's obviously really important, the health of that. Um, ecosystem because it has ramifications for us, you know, in the in the in the scale of things just up the road in New Zealand. How does the health of Antarctic and the Southern Ocean's um, ecosystem uh, affect our own ability to uh, use that resource and be able to um, harvest food from from those oceans? Mm. So um, I'll, I'll answer the first part. So the Antarctic part. Uh, Antarctica is a really dynamic system. People used to think that it didn't have as much biodiversity as other areas, but it's incredibly rich in biodiversity. We have rich benthic, you know, seabed, um, you know, life uh, within the water column. There's a lot of life. There's not always, it's not evenly spread, as I said before, you know, because you've got summer and winter and they're quite different periods of time. That's right. But, you know, the the Antarctic or Southern Ocean waters support massive colonies of penguins and seals and and increasingly whales. One of the things that's been kind of interesting in recent years is this notion that we killed over two million whales in the Southern Ocean during the whaling era. It was massive. Um, destruction of a key predator Um, and we didn't really realise quite how important they were. So there's been some work uh, done mostly uh, by Australians and various others over the last sort of decade or so looking at what triggers um, productivity in the Southern Ocean. Now within um, ocean is made of its chemistry right so it's the biogeochemistry um, which includes the living things the the minerals nutrients micronutrients in the water um, that makes in the chemistry of the water is is what um, drives how an ocean works or a body of water works and that's global in the southern ocean we know that it's an iron limited environment okay and iron a biologically available iron is really important for phytoplankton okay so so in the Southern Ocean, um, it's an iron-limited environment, so that iron has to come from somewhere. It, it, it sort of, we have this sort of um, unusual situation where it's productive, but we're not exactly sure how, what drives that productivity. Right. Recently, they looked at whale poo and, um, as a source of iron. And they found that whale, because the whales are eating krill, 
Krill eat phytoplankton. Krill lock up the iron in their carapace, in their bodies. Right. Sure, some of it comes out in krill poo, which is a contributor. But for whales that eat just tons and tons of krill, when they poop, their iron is 10 million times higher concentration in whale poo than it is in the surrounding water. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It's an amazing... <laughs> Everyone he's pulling this, just, what the I'm face? I'm just imagining it. <laughs> yeah, their poo is quite the business. But that aside, <laughs> the fact that it, it has this massive concentration of iron in it is, we think, really important for phytoplankton blooms. Right. So there's a lot of discussion around are whales kind of ecosystem engineers by That's the actual nature of what they eat and then they poop out the back. They're kind of seeding iron to get more phytoplankton, That's which right. might get more zooplankton. So what we've thought for a, a number of years as the normal Antarctic system probably isn't normal. It was it was dramatically altered oh. through the 1900s by whaling. I see. Yeah, so we're kind of starting to recalibrate right. how we think of productivity in um, Antarctic waters. And I think as the whales increase in number, we're going to see a real shift in productivity and systems within Antarctica right. and those places where we thought were, you know, some of the thoughts around it being a poor nutrient kind of place um, may get turned around or at least, you know, adjust our vision a little on that. And that's kind of exciting because what that means is is that um, if, if the system is such that more whales mean um, more scat, means more phytoplankton, means more krill, fish, etc., etc., we may say, see in the Southern Ocean much more life. Right. If there's more life in the Southern Ocean, then we've got more carbon in the system. And there's been some interesting discussions around blue carbon. You know, so the blue carbon? Blue carbon is uh, the ocean oh, as right, a carbon source. So yeah. we're 70% ocean, yeah. our planet. And so when a whale dies yep. it locks up and it falls down it falls to the deep to the yep. seabed it's actually a, a carbon sequester yeah which is an interesting notion in these carbon dioxide you love it but you don't well it's interesting isn't mm. it you know that that actually climate change could be linked to carbon being stored in whales so saving the whales may <laughs> but these are kind of interesting mental leaps about right. um, about how our whole global systems bigger work. picture stuff yeah that's yeah. right and it's not just whales you know if if an elephant seal I mean they're a male elephant seal he's about four tons yeah. you know exactly the same thing so if these systems these southern ocean systems can actually restore to what was normal before we disrupted them by killing millions of whales seals penguins all of those big things yep. that you know eat a lot of krill yeah I'm really excited you know I'm not going to see it yeah. but sometime in the next hundred whatever years we may actually start to see a very different Antarctica. If that's the case, then that link of the Southern Ocean to the rest of the world will, will move as well. Will change. There's yeah. even more learning to be done. That's right. And so how, does, how are we connected to the Southern Ocean as New Zealand? So New Zealand, you know, is an amazing country because we, we span a, a massive latitudinal That's gradient. Right. You know, so we sort of go from sort of subtropical to subantarctic. Tall and lanky. We are. We're yeah. tall and lanky and we're surrounded by these huge bodies of water. And so New Zealand every year gets, is influenced by um, Antarctic, subantarctic currents and troughs and flows. We are heavily influenced by the weather patterns. And the weather... Is um, is driven by biology, and you know, in some capacity. So there's been some quite fascinating work um, looking at clouds and that. I mean, they found phytoplankton in clouds. What? Wacky. 
I know, it's so cool. There's, that must have been an awesome day. <laughs> it was a big day at the office. But, but if you think about them, you know, these are tiny little unicellular yeah. microscopic. I mean, you, know, you can't see them with your eyes, most all of the, the, the um, phytoplankton. They're, they're tiny, tiny little So they'd organisms. get caught up in the vapour and they'd go for the wi- yeah. wildest ride of their life yeah, all the way up into the clouds. I mean, there's dust up in space. There's, you know, there's insects in space. There's spores, you know, pollen spores. I mean, it's amazing. So within our atmosphere, layers um, and where our weather patterns occur we actually have life moving around up in there so I'm I I think you know that notion of I I think one of the really nice things about being a whale biologist is that you you think big because these animals live anywhere between Mm. the tropics and Antarctica right. right so instantly I'm in I'm on a I'm thinking on a global scale and they're influenced by productivity cycles that are big as well and dynamic, you know, and their lives are, um, you know, dramatic as well. They breed or they feed or they're swimming somewhere in between. So I I think if people can sort of get their head around that big scale. um, The connectedness of of all the ecosystems. That's right. And to to not see the Southern Ocean as critical is just just foolish, you know. And the Southern Ocean is such a major driver of our global weather patterns. Right, of course. It's just that there's nothing gets in the way. They've got a little bit of a squeeze by the Antarctic Peninsula in South America, but other than that, she just whips around, you know, that west wind. The birthplace of the southerly. That's right, that's right. That continues up and up, you know, and the movement of, of currents and weather systems is, is global. So New Zealand, it's our backyard, and we do see it. We get hit by it regularly, even though it takes a week and a ship to get there. I know. <laughs> I, know. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm stoked. Uh, I've got, I managed to, managed to hitch a ride on a plane. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll, you, they all have different challenges, whether you're on land or at sea. I've never touched Antarctica. So I still I've, can't believe this. I've so seen it and I've waved at it and I've been very close. <laughs> How many times? You've stood on it. <laughs> like a handful of times. You've just <laughs> reached out. <laughs> yeah, most of the time we're just in the fog. <laughs> and yeah. so if I could just ask you, because I feel like you're the best person to ask anyway, why are you so passionate about your work and why is it so important for us? It's a, I don't know. I'm just one of those overexcitable people. I think I, I like challenges. I like learning. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm someone who's really inspired by other people's work. You know, and I'm, I've got a curious mind. I, I think a lot of the work that I've described, it's not me at all. It's, it's a we. It's always so many people. There's of so course. many people involved in it, and so many amazing people. You know, we've got physicists and chemists and um, you know atmospheric scientists and uh, people who are telemetry experts and just you know electrical engineers who like making widgets that we can put you in can a whale use, and yeah. beam up to space you know it's always a team effort yeah that's right and I, I think it's quite exciting when you study these really challenging animals you know they're not bugs and boxes mm-hmm. you know they're really challenging to study but when you bring together all of these really cool Uh, innovative thoughts and ideas and technologies you know we're actually getting to a point where we can answer some really cool questions and you know going back to that non-lethal research for me it's really critical to try and tread as lightly as we can we still need to do certain things to Mm. answer questions you know but from a single biopsy sample now which takes I don't know it's about you know, half, your, half your fingernails worth of tissue, right. the skin off that we can use and we know 
you know, who that individual well as we genotype them. Um, we know who they're related to. We know if, you know, who their mum or dad is, if we can, you know, capture that, which we have done in some of the smaller populations, it's great. But we can also use it to tell what they were eating, and we're working on these isoscape models with uh, some folks at NIWA, you know, where they're potentially eating right. in Antarctica, because right. the biogeochemistry... Just by the bio, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then, and then we can use it for, um, for telling their age. So we can now age whales using epigenetics, which How is... How long do these whales live? About 70, give right. or take. We had a whale um, at Roll Island that was about 67 years of age, so it's, you know, give or take three years, which means that whale was alive when whaling was still just coming to an end. You know, I, I love that. I just sort of was like, wow, that's... Seen it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Seen but, you know, we can use all of this stuff. And then the blubber, the little bit of blubber we get for the fem um, females, obviously, um, we can tell if she's pregnant or not. Right. So we're now getting a handle on how many of these females have a calf and are pregnant, how many of these pregnancies go through to full term. And that's a latest project that we're doing with some colleagues at... Um, Sam, uh, at um, UC uh, Santa Cruz in oh, the United right. States, yeah, as part of a big SORP project. So, you know, but just from that one tiny little sample, we know what mm. they ate, where they went, who they're related to, who they are, how many babies, you know, just, it's, it's mind-blowing. And, and that sort of stuff is what inspires me. And I think, you know, we, Antarctica's a long way away, and it's a really hard... It's an inaccessible place That's for right. most people, but it's so critical. So if we can find ways to get people to think about it, and I'll be excited. Absolutely. That's <laughs> kind of what this is all about. That's right. And I mean, on that note as well, I mean, can you, is there a particular moment, see, for me, um, getting people to uh, care and connect with the environment, even though they might not necessarily have um, so much uh, involvement with it, it's all about uh, connection and those moments that you might have with nature, if, even if they are fleeting, but they really stay with you. Are there any uh, moments uh, that you've had while down on your voyages um, where you've really felt like, wow, this is like, this is why I'm doing this work and like, I love this and like, you know, did you see this whale pop up and, he, and it looked at you deep into your soul <laughs> and, you know, did you, have you had any kind of moments like that? Um, I think... I think there's a few things that really stick with me. One was when we came across a really large feeding aggregation of whales and um, titi, or the shearwaters. And these little shearwaters are flying. They fly. It takes them a couple of days. Right. They, they stuff themselves, filled with krill. They look like little rugby balls with wings, <laughs> and then they fly back and feed their chicks. Right. And these birds are incredible, and they're just flying between New Zealand and, and, and the Southern Ocean, you know, and we're lumbering down there slowly. I mean, that, for me, just gave an idea of the scale and the magnitude of how productive the place was. There were, there were like thousands and thousands of birds and then, you know, tens of whales feeding in the space near the Balaney Islands. And, and I think that's when it, it sort of struck me of why they swim all that way. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was a really great moment. And then um, last year when we were in Antarctica um, on the Tangaroa as well, we, um, we just had this really lovely day of these goofball whales. So humpbacks are real. They're such dorks. <laughs> they really are. And they're like, what are you doing? And they come over and they slap around. And, you know, everyone, everyone comes out when the humpbacks are around. And they are. They're just mucking around. They're completely Quite off that place. Animals, are they? Well, they're just mucking around. And right. I think humans muck around. So yeah. we, we like seeing that in other animals. You know, they're not. They're feeding. They're not intensely competing with 
with each other for access to food. They're not con you know, competing to breed because they don't breed. So they're actually a really much more relaxed, chilled out um, you know, animal. And that, you know, that I, really, I really enjoyed um, seeing that. Absolutely. You know, that just, they're just of this place. And you know, every now and then you'll see a documentary about them and it's almost like, oh, and this long journey and this poor calf. And it's not poor. No. That's what it's bred to do, you know. Right. This is their life. That's their life. Their yeah. life, yeah. So it's quite humbling because we're just rubbish down there. Absolutely. And these animals are just incredible. And you'll see this. You'll see like penguins, the birds, everything. You know, tiny little seabirds, like these tiny little snow petrels. It's blowing, like, you know, about... I can imagine 50 knots, just and they're just bip, bip, bip around yeah, feeding. It doesn't matter. We'd just be flat on the ground. We're not allowed to go outside. It's too windy. And these little tiny birds. I can imagine there Amazing. must be just uh, a lot of joy, I suppose, yeah. when you see all that. And you know, I just I imagine there'd just be a big old smile on your face. Oh my gosh, it was huge. It was really cool. We do see, you do see some other things which are a bit sad. We um, we did see uh, last year. We had a I think it was an Antarctic petrel, and it was flying around. And I thought it had a, a uh, gammy foot, you know, right. sort of a limp foot, and it came and it sat on the ship, and we're sort of looking at it, and it was preening itself a lot right. um, by its legs. And it turns out it had um, that sort of plumbing tape wrapped around its legs, around both of its legs, and we managed to catch the bird, thankfully, um, and um, and cut the tape off. It thankfully it hadn't cut into the legs of the bird, but it was a really long piece of of plastic tape. Right. Now these are Antarctic petrels; they Absolutely. just live down there. You know, and I was just like, okay, you know. This place we are not connected, cool. isn't it? Yeah, it's, not it cool. Turns out it is kind of close sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you see things like that. You see rubbish. You see buoys and that. And, you know, and that. I'm just like, come on, people. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. But again, it's, I guess, it's, and that's where it's seeing those things, I'm sure, make it very easy for you to be able to and, and motivate yourself to make those changes that are so required in our societies now yeah. um, and that don't have that sort of implication down south. And that's, yeah, yeah I guess, getting people um, more aware of this kind of thing. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's the whole mission. Yeah, um, it's about, you know, zooming out your thinking. You do this here, right here, right now, but it, it resonates somewhere else in the world. That's right. You know, so think, you know, Whatever you do, think think wider than your immediate world because it's, it's pretty important. And I think I also think that's a wonderful part of life too, being able to step out and step away and look beyond your life and kind of look, you know, now we're getting philosophical, but it's like being able to do that, I think you're going to grow yourself as a person and you're just going to become a better person when you have those thoughts anyway. No, you're just part of a magnificent big whole planet. Exactly. And all the wonder in it, yeah. Global citizens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, well, I think... Um, just because the audience I feel that might be listening will probably be um, sort of, you know, keen keen sort of enthusiasts and environmentalists, young environmentalists, any kind of environmentalist. Uh, how have you got people excited um, and motivated about the environment and, and sort of uh, building that, uh, that idea of, the, of needing to protect it um, for the sake of our own um, ability to thrive as a society as well? Uh, how have you, you know, you've had a lot of success in the last, in your career of just being able to talk to people and get them excited about conservation, specifically marine conservation, whale conservation. Uh, do you have any tips for people that are listening just, you know, in terms of how they can talk to their neighbour and somehow get them a little excited about it? Mm. Um, it's a really good question because different things inspire people in different ways. You know, you have the quiet doers and the 
the chatty ones. I'm a chatty one, clearly. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think what's really important is is be true to yourself. You know, so think about the things that inspire you, and then think about what your actions and your uh, the way that you operate in your life has an effect beyond you. You know, it's sort of like be the thing you want to see. Exactly. You know, and, and there's a lot of you know discussion around. You know, the classic at the moment is you know picking up plastic rubbish. That's great. We were picking up plastic rubbish as as kids as well. It's always interesting. You know, as you get older, you sort of like oh. Oh well, we're still doing that. That's great. It hasn't stopped the plastic yet. So you know, these are these are societal changes. These are stopping and reflecting and changing the way you live. Similarly, with climate change, climate change is the biggest thing that is hitting Antarctica right now. Yeah. So one of the projects that we're really interested in now is um, where the ice is uh, receding rapidly. Will that change the productivity of those places? Those are places where our Oceania humpbacks go and they are poor productive places and they're going to get worse, right. probably. Yep. So, so you know, you're driving your car a kilometre up the road to go to the shop on a sunny day. Don't do that. Doesn't Just make sense. walk. Get on your bike. Or yeah. do you need to go to the Better shop? for you. Yeah, all of that. But they're just tiny. Sure, it might be convenient to race up there. Don't do that. Slow down, stop, and think about what you're doing. And climate change, I, I yeah, mm. we could we could have we a could whole other podcast about, about that. But, Absolutely. But it's something really important. So I think there's those little conversations that mm. you have to have with yourself and be comfortable with with yourself, and then you can act on them. So it might be joining an environmental group and you pay money to it or it might be actually you know being part of a uh, you know beach cleanup by sustainable coastlines or you know sea cleaners I mean there's so many things that you can do Absolutely. in New Zealand and you know and get involved um, you know give people a tree for yeah, Christmas do they need another piece of plastic crap nope no, give them a tree not. you know they're just strange odd little things but yeah be the be the change you want to see Absolutely. it's I really important the cool thing is that I think there are more of these realisations yeah. starting to happen big time you know, I feel like we're getting to this kind of critical point mass and hopefully there's a there's a, a fall in when we start really making quick change. Yeah. And obviously we have to do that now as well with this these next 10 to 12 years, as they say. Yeah, that's right. And, and just, you know, being engaged, you know, vote. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Have a say, engage, you know. I mean, there's lots of ways you can do that. And I just think um, everyone will find their place, but, but be bold. Be bold. The planet needs you. It really does. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's. And I thought about it the other day. I was. Uh, I just had a surf, and I came back from the beach, and I was walking back up, and I saw, um, you know, just a cigarette butt, classic, classic case. Uh, I pick it up, and I had the realization that you know what, like everyone, you know, everyone wants to have this dream of leaving the world a better place and being a better person and making a change. Uh, but I feel like we as humans hype it up to think that the only change that we can register or say that we've done well in is if it's this big, colossal change that never even happens, by the way. You know, it's all about the incremental little steps. And yeah. I just picked up that cigarette button. I was like, you know what? It's not much, but I feel like I've just made the world a little bit of a better of a place, which you have. And it's so easy to do that. Yeah, it's really true. If everyone just picked up one bit of rubbish, you know, in New Zealand every day that's like over four million bits of rubbish gone you know better still don't create it (laughs) so many things we can do but yeah antarctica is uh is you know it's changing and and we need to be mindful of that so it's that you know you might live local but think global 
Thank you so much for joining us and listening in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and do check out some of the others. As always, it'd be great to hear from you. So leave a review or subscribe or get in touch anyway. More info about the episode can be found in the show notes, so feel free to explore. Thanks again, and here's to Antarctica.